Perfect. Perfectly framed. Lighting was good. What was I doing? Squinty Muck's squint face wrecked it. Because right, you're normally pretty, he's, he's pretty photogenic normally. You, you, you don't have, you, you say that you don't have one, you've got one bad side, is that what you're saying? I don't have any good side, you but don't I, have have a, I have a worse side than the other. I have a terrible side, as in any, any profile of yeah. me makes me look like some sort of Turn. ghost-like giraffe. Turn. Turn. My profile is an appalling thing. I, don't, I disagree. I'm so very careful um, when on television mm. um, to make sure that I I spend very very little time turning at any point yeah. to speak to anybody, and I'll do that thing that people do, particularly on the breakfast sofa, where you see that they they turn a little bit and then mm. kind of look back at the camera. Do you dislike cameras three and four then, in particular? Well, I tend to do. Oh, this is getting this is very, very inside TV. Isn't yeah. it? When you when you when you have either well, you're never on camera three, but when you're on camera four. Um, you have enough time usually because it's not a straight camera to camera switch. You've got something. So I always shift my body. So I'm doing a lot of whenever I'm on set and sitting down, I tend to do a lot of shifting around so that at no point my, my face is in profile. So on your wedding day, am oh, I going to be God, having to brief know. the wedding photographer yeah. on which directions he's allowed to shoot you from? So essentially I'm going to say to her, don't go over there. Will you, only I, be, will you be insisting on only having your photos taken whilst you're looking down the barrel? Uh, looking down the barrel, and and what will happen is that you often <laughs> get <laughs> you often get um, photos, loving photos of one person looking at the other. You know that's a thing, isn't it? You yeah. either get them both to look at each other, or one person looking at the other person, and the other person is kind of doing that middle distance look. Well, the rule is going to be that Gemma is only going to be able to look at me, so I'm going to look like this really kind of patriarchal <laughs> dominant <laughs> dominant man who's basically got his wife looking at him lovingly. It's really embarrassing having, having your wedding pictures taken. How many did you have? Oh, far too many. It's ridiculous. And then did they try and charge you like thousands of pounds for the album. Of of the Just print them off. If you like, say that there was like <laughs> with the watermark. With the watermark. <laughs> you old romantic. You. <laughs> and on paper, that's fine. Yeah. I just find some A4. But you, not even on paper. Just put them on the cloud. If you had two thousand photos, for example, mm. how many of them have you either got up around the house or will keep? I think we ha- we have a, a self-made album. My sister took some pictures as well. So there's an album of her pictures. That was free. Uh, that was nice of her. We have. Was it a gift? Or did she get you another it was a present gift, as well? Yeah, it was a gift. Um, I think we've got two photos up, but I don't like having pictures of myself up. I, don't, I think it, I think when you go into houses, I also just like risk that. Of alienating, well, I think a wedding um, is okay. Well, no, but the risk of alienating a lot of people I know, which, as far as I can tell, people we know is literally the audience for this podcast. <laughs> the, the so. We're about to lose one quarter of our listeners. <laughs> I think it's weird when you go into people's houses and they've got lots of pictures of their wedding everywhere. I think it's weird. Keep them in I your bedroom. You can you can have one or two. Yeah. The, the picture of Andy Hinchcliffe on our logo for Seppi's menu is from the table at which he got married. Yeah, but the best thing about Andy Hinchcliffe's house is that he also has framed his passport photo. Because <laughs> 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 you just happen to look a little My, smoldering. It's a really good picture though, isn't it? No, it's like, like a criminal. the essence of me. It doesn't. Uh, what? The essence of you is playful and light. Nikki did that. She said you look so dashing and that was the word how, she used. How many photos got, do you have a, of your wedding up in your house? There's none from the actual formal ceremony. There's one maybe, we had a party afterwards after my second marriage we're talking about here, yes. Yes, I would uh, expect you to have I, pictures I, of your first marriage up be, in the house that you share with your second wife. That would be unusual. I, I did have them up initially, but they got taken down really quickly. <laughs> uh, Just a really happy day. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so, but we've got one from the party afterwards where I'm looking particularly sexy, holding my new wife in a clinch. 
in black and white, which is very is that the one, moody. Is was that, that the, the chinch clinch? Chinch clinch. Andy Clinchcliffe. <laughs> when you get in this clinch, Rory, just, there's no getting out. This is Set Piece Menu, the podcast where four friends talk football over food. Thank you very much indeed for joining us uh, once again. You may well remember that at the end of uh, the last show, um, there was a little bit of consternation about me and my comments about other people's food and how I might unnecessarily draw attention to how wonderful my cooking is. As a result of that, we're not mentioning food at any point during this podcast. I appreciate... We'll all all get a message about it. It's an essential part of the podcast, but the reason we're doing that is because, frankly, (laughs) it wasn't good enough. But let's not dwell on that, because I'd like to introduce the team before we go on any further. I am Hugh Ferris. I am the sunshine of the podcast. That's Steve Wyeth over there. He's the moonlight. Hello. Rory Smith is all about the good times. (laughs) And Andy Hinchcliffe is the boogie, so we blame everything on him. Thank you all. That's how it works. We are together, a presenter, commentator, writer, and pundit, and we will, over the next week, while or so discuss one footballing subject after which we'll hear an amusing tale from Chinch's playing days in another soccer story there are plenty of ways that you can get in touch with us and thank you to everybody who has done so at set piece menu on twitter is where we are and also you can reach us on email at setpiecemenu at gmail.com that is uh, where you can at least send us some appreciative feedback should you wish to do so you can also on itunes review rate subscribe and one thing I would like to mention at this point is do tell your friends. Our marketing department, uh, frankly, is your word of mouth and nothing more. That depends if people have friends. Uh, that's true. Our marketing department may well rely on you having friends. Yeah, to prove, that, prove to us that you have friends by telling them. That's the way Look to. popular yeah. by telling them exactly. and then help us as well. On this week's show, um, big clubs in Europe have been accused recently of stockpiling young players and sending them all out on loan with seemingly very little chance of them eventually reaching the first team. So are teams like Juventus and Chelsea, who have had this season more than 80 players between them out on loan, guilty of blocking the progress of talented young players. Now, this was uh, brought up recently in a a conversation with the new UEFA president, Alexander Shefferin, um, but not the conversation that was had with Rory Smith of the New York Times. Now, it's been a while since you were able to name drop. I do love um, name dropping. So Did I since, mention I met Francesco Totti? Since the, the Francesco Totti <laughs> uh, has been... Uh, if you want to talk about young players not having their, their development blocked, Francesco Totti <laughs> is a great example. And he told you this when you met him last year. Absolutely. Um, but um, Shefferin is, is basically saying that he would like to see some sort of luxury tax or a way of preventing this from happening hoarding yeah player hoarding so I saw Shefferin your pronunciation is flawless mine is not I'm Uh, I'm good on Slovenian and very little else I saw Shefferin in Neon in sort of mid to late February and we published the piece in mid mid to late March it's the New York Times that's just how it works (laughs) Uh, and we've got a lot of stuff to cover the successful New York Times. Exactly. That's why we're failing, because we keep putting things off for a month. Is this oh. why it's so hard to nail you down to a time to, to yeah. do the Set Piece Mini Football podcast? Because you, you're I'm crafting thinking, a piece over I'm the course thinking, of three or four weeks. I'm six weeks in advance, Steve, to be honest. Okay. I'm permanently six weeks. I'm thinking was, about, I know who wins the FA Cup. I was, I was <laughs> once sharing a lovely, a lovely coffee with Rory, and he said at the end of that uh, lovely time that we had together, I need to go home and think. Yes. And that was probably for a piece that we are yet to see. Yeah. And that coffee was shared, I think, in October. Yeah. I'm still thinking about it. Can't wait for this piece. It's going to be great. amazing. Uh, no, so I saw Shefferin in February. And I've got to admit, I'm, so like, when I, when, funny when I started at the MIT, one of my big worries was the sports politics side of it. Because I'm really, I'm not good at it as a journalist. It's one of my, I have many flaws as a journalist, but that is my biggest one. Um, and it's partly because I don't really care. So I don't, 
obviously when, when the whole FIFA thing exploded, that was an amazing story and you sort of think, God, I wish I knew someone at FIFA so I could help. Uh, but I don't, so I didn't. Um, but you sort of think, generally, I don't know how much kind of connection there is between football, the sport, and football, the, govern, the thing that's governed by these bodies. But I met Seferin and I, I thought it was quite important as he's kind of a, an unknown quantity, he kind of came from nowhere, and he... Uh, hadn't really had a chance to say what he was going to be about. And I was really impressed with him. I was really encouraged by what he said. And we talked about a lot of different subjects. Player hoarding wasn't one of them. But just after we published the interview, as you say, uh, so the interview was um, criticised by a Norwegian magazine called Josimar, who've done a lot of work on trying to work out where Seferin's come from and his connections to Infantino, if any. And Josimar were upset with me because I, they felt I'd given him an easy ride, which I would resent. I just kind of did what you meant to do, which is I asked him all the questions, including I put all of Josimar's allegations to him and um, and then allowed him the chance to respond to them, which is kind of journalism. But anyway. Have, uh, haven't Josimar got the opportunity to do their own work rather than criticising yours? They do, and they do, no, I don't want to kind of get into, some, into a feud with a Norwegian because that's where the Vikings came from and I'd, I'd lose. <laughs> but no, I'd, like, they're, they're entitled to disagree with Seferin. They're entitled to be, to be suspicious of him. I, I got a bit rankled with them for suggesting that I was a destructive journalist. See how quickly I leapt to your defence there, though. Thanks, Steve. That's appreciated. Anyway, I was really pleased... They'll be coming for you as well, Steve. Not just because Josimar had a go at me, but I was really pleased that that Seferin, a few days later, coincidentally, came out with these comments about luxury taxes and the competitive imbalance in Europe. So I, I genuinely, personally believe it's the most pressing issue facing football, that at some point people are going to think, Barca, Real Madrid, Bayern Munich, these teams win everything every year, this is boring. That is going to happen at some point. Anyway, he's right to say that player hoarding is a huge issue. Chelsea are the best example of it in Britain, although other clubs do it. Um, Juventus do it in, um, in Italy, Udinese done it. It, it is starting to happen that, that talent is being centralised, and that is troubling in a lot of ways, because it means that the cl- other clubs don't have chance to keep that talent, especially if it's been drawn from all over Europe, so you're getting players from Slovenia or wherever going to Italy and sitting in the reserves. But it's bad for the players as well, because they aren't the system It doesn't work. It doesn't work to raise elite first-team players. It might work to make academies balance the books because you get lots of players through who you sell for two or three million quid and then that helps pay for everything and then the one player who comes through your academy every five years who is going to be a first team or whatever happens you've got a free is, you, you do get for free you, you know you can write and, off his development and it money. often legitimizes everything that yeah, exactly. has happened before so it works from that point of view I know why the players do it because players back themselves as Chinch can no doubt attest that players will always think I'm a 17 year old Chelsea want to sign me I bet I can make it I'll be different Mm -hmm. I know why the agents do it because the agents will be saying to the players and quite rightly if you break your leg when you're 19 then you're going to be really glad of the two years money that Chelsea have paid you and that I can understand as well but the system in terms of producing as many players as possible to the highest level possible and spreading talent around is really really dangerous for European football in general Is this not just football's way of of natural selection where yes you might have 30 young players who are good but if they are good enough they will always rise to the top and we should just let it happen because if you're if you're good enough you're good enough you'll get into the team or is this really a situation where development is being hindered because even if you are good enough for 99% of teams because you're still at Chelsea or at Juventus you will not get an opportunity to either play enough football or develop correctly so the theory behind it is that if you gather lots of the best young players together, 
they will spur each other on. This is the whole logic behind the elite player performance plan, EPPPPPP, <laughs> uh, which is the Premier League. Simply put, the Premier League, yeah, the Premier League and the FAs, I think, uh, controversial, shall we say, uh, but but in in place and not without merit development plan. So the idea is you get lots of good, good kids together and they're all really good and it, it's better to have them all in one place than dotted, you know, two at Wickham. So what ages do the players actually come to the Well, clubs? they're starting to sign them as young as sort of 14. 14, blimey. It, it get, th- th- those are relatively rare cases. I, I still don't really understand how you can look at a 14-year-old and think he's going to be better than any other 14-year-old because there's so much more to do. But 14, 15 is when they start transferring them, 16, 17. You look at any of the top six, Chelsea, the, the standard bearer, City do it as well. Liverpool have done it. United have done it uh, with very little success in both cases. Well, Liverpool maybe more does a Sterling and um, Jordan Ibe, uh, who were both signed. So the, the, it's not just a Chelsea thing. The others are doing it as well. Arsenal do it to a, to a slightly lesser extent, and Spurs as well. Um, so that's the logic behind it, is the more good kids you get in one place, the, they all encourage each other, they raise the standard. The problem, as Hugh suggests, is that you get what you end up with is lots of 18, 19-year-olds, 20-year-olds who have only ever played youth team football, exactly. academy football, and then under-23 football, which is not competitive. So you are raising lots of technically accomplished footballers who have absolutely no competitive edge, mm-hmm. which means they go out on loan to the Championship and lead one, and they can't cope because they're not used to that kind of grizzled football that you get. In, in, they're competing against men, they're playing in front of... In front of crowds it matters it's too much for them which means they fail on loan which means the clubs look at them and think well you're not good enough to play in the championship yet you better, better have another year in the academy uh, then they do it on loan again it doesn't work again as the problem's not been solved which means they get to 22 and they're written off so you get this big gap of in, like england's youth teams are a great example oops 17s 18s england are brilliant 20 the 21s are pretty good as well to be fair and then the the, men, the national team is the senior national team is not brilliant with all due respect. And the problem is that you are basically losing every player who comes through these expensive academies at 18. So they're all sitting not playing competitive football, and that is the issue with it. So you came through an academy, Chinch. You won the FA Youth Cup in 1986. So you were with a good academy that played good football. It wasn't and, an academy. And achieved, and it, it well, it was, wasn't an academy. Not called an academy at the time. No. I appreciate, but if we're taking the, the comparison with the, the modern structure, youth, youth team players. Yeah. So w- at, at the stage that I know you. You made your first team debut incredibly young. Yeah, twelve. <laughs> Quite. He just, he just looked sixteen. Um, but you made your you made your debut young because there was there was a pathway. Now mm. there might have been a pathway because you were good enough, which I am assuming is likely. But there will also often be a pathway because of needs. Needs must. What what was it like for you in terms of making your breakthrough? And was there a big jump, or was there a natural pathway that you felt that you were going to follow? Well, as Rory was saying, there the, the developmentally of the players is probably, in my opinion, is arguably more important than the technical side of the game. So I was training at 15, 16, 17 with senior first team players who were giving you a kick. Now you got to understand what it was like playing at their level. You weren't playing with. I always played above age groups as well for maybe 10, 11 years old. I was playing against 14 year olds when I was 11 when I was 12, 15 so I never played against my own age group so how it would be for me now because I would presumably would be put in a, a pool of players of my age whether that would develop you technically and, and mentally as quickly as it did back in my day because you, you just had to get you had to do it clearly you had to be good enough they wouldn't put you in if you weren't good enough but you had to learn very quickly um, what was needed to survive as well and I also had a lot of players around me I'd grown up with as well which is which is helpful I wasn't just kind of a, a, a fish out of water on my own stuck into a first team I was playing with five or six lads that I'd known for seven or eight years which made it easier because you're all kind of moving forward together but that's why with, with the club stockpiling players would it be any 
would it be straightforward? Would I, again, follow the same path? Would I be making my debut at 16, 17 years old for Man City? The club was very different as well in terms of, 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 of getting an opportunity to play in the first team. I don't think you probably would do. You would definitely have gone out on loan to see how you cope. But I, I feel if I'd have been sent out on loan or gone into the first team as I did at City, I would have been fine because I've been training day in and day out with senior first team for players. How long? Which, for how long before your day, your first years. team debut? For two years. And we used to obviously clean, I used to clean Mick McCarthy's, but we used to have a lot of jobs to do as well around the first team. So we, we saw them on match days, we saw them on training days. We were involved with them, not just on the training field, but in the dressing room as well. Doing, so you understood how a first team player went about his business. So it wasn't a, a, a leap at all. It was just a straight transition because we'd seen it for maybe two or three years as an apprentice. And that was the whole point, was getting you used to being ready to step into the first That's team. literally what an apprenticeship That's is. That's what it's... But now it seems to be, well, you just, like you've already said, you play with a bunch of players at that age, then the next age group, and you might look world beaters. But then ultimately, when you're sent out to play in the professional game elsewhere they really seem to struggle not all of them do some of them are successful because they do have the mental strength to cope with it and the ability but for, I, I just think it is such a, a different state of affairs than when I was given an opportunity to come through as a youth team player now the whole structure is totally different I, clubs genuinely they or the FA or whoever it is the Premier League believe that the more young quality players you put together they will that, that is the driving force behind yeah. having all these players because I just don't see that that would be the case. The logic, I, I find that really intimidating. The logic comes from... It's partly... And Steve hasn't even spoken yet, which I feel really good. I'm really enjoying the discussion, though, he, Lance. He's, he's done that really intake well. of breath, that anticipatory intake of breath at least 17 times, uh, which means we should probably wait for an 18th. So, carry on. I was going to say, partly that, that... It's only a quick point, Steve, don't worry. It's partly that English football always does this, where it, it, it decides that something's wrong, so it does something to change it, then it decides that's not worked immediately, so it does the exact opposite, and then that doesn't work, so it does the exact opposite, and then before you So know many it, knee jerks you'd need at least 11 yeah, knee operations totally, to yeah it's totally chasing, <laughs> chasing its tail and that's part of the problem so it's, that's the latest trend whether that will in five years five years time well now they're, now they're sharing ideas with Germany aren't they yeah exactly and it'll be, the, the German system will be slightly different but it came from Spain it came from the but idea that presumably the, the clubs want all these players to call on just in case any of them show real aptitude for it and they can say well there are players there's so not somebody else's players I think it's different I think there's different motivations I think some of them buy into the idea that you get lots of talented kids together, they drive each other on. I think in certain cases, they are basically running player trading businesses on the side, which contribute A, to the expenses of the academy, which mean that when you do get players who come through, the sorts, the sorts of players who will always make it, the Roonies, the Fowlers, you know, whatever. The Hinchcliffs. The Hinchcliffs. <laughs> yeah. Just rolls the, off the tongue. Just rolls off the tongue. But, you know, some players are just cut out to be, yeah. they don't need, it doesn't matter where, you, you know, they, they could come through village football and they still be, end up being professionals. Some of them are doing it so they run the player trading business to support the academy and to contribute towards the first team transfer budget. Others, I think it's just the sense that you go out, if your rivals are doing it, you go out and do it. You don't want... You want to make sure that they don't have them. If there's yes. a 16-year-old yeah. kid at Wickham yeah. who you want to... And I'm only saying Wickham, a couple have come through Wickham. If there's a 16-year-old 16 kid, 16 kid at Wickham, you don't want Spurs to sign him. You, so you, you have to sign him. I mm -hmm. think there's a lot of that. But the whole thing falls down on this, this point where they're not... They are cocooned. There is no kind of there is there is a pathway to eighteen, and then as soon as they're they're cast into a slightly different type of game, then they then they struggle. And the irony is, an agent said this to me not that not that long ago, that the the academy players should be sought after in lower championship lead one, even lead two, but they're not, so they can't cope with the physicality. They're not used to it. So you're actually breeding footballers not just in this country but you're recruiting them from abroad as well remember who aren't really they're not maybe not maybe not good enough to play in the Premier League because they've n never had the chance but they're not really any use to anybody PlayStation footballers yeah kind of they're not kind of used to 
to, the, you can't put them into a League One match because it's it's too rough. It's it's too kind of there's too much bite. There's too much intensity. They're not used to that. They're they're playing this this sort of sanitised, sterilised academy football. But aren't they there to, to, to develop a side of the game that, that, that the academy hasn't developed? Yeah, so but the point is that the lead one team, you know, needs, MK Don, needs them to do... MK Don's a really bad example, yeah. so they probably would. But yeah, they need them to be ready to play, they've got to win. And that's, that's a, a problem they haven't got. I think it would be much better for the kids to be allowed to develop in their natural environments and have the talent more spread out, because that way there is a pathway for them to get into the team. So I feel like uh, some sort of fanfare should now blare from our trumpets. As <laughs> no, hang on, it should Steve be like a, it should be like a dramatic build-up. Do, 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 do. <laughs> I'm do, just going to stay silent. I'll let you get on with it. Do, do. If you're going to be like this, do, 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 do. <laughs> just going to carry on, Steve. Hang on a bit. That's the end of EastEnders. Yeah, no, that's oh, that was the end. Was that the start of Holby? No. Oh. No. What's the start of Holby? It's like a heartbeat. It's a heartbeat. It's the start it? of Holby. Is that what was Casualty? It's basically it's pretty much exactly the same thing. Do, 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 How do we get on to the to, to the guy who's fixing his lawnmower and accidentally cuts do, 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 a finger off? That's you, why? So basically, any anything that any point that I've got to make is going to result and is all ending up in A and E. Don't we just have to embrace this, accept it? Football is not a socialist society. There is going to be haves and have-nots. It's not that this is happening, it's the clubs that are stockpiling these players, isn't it? Because they can afford to go out and buy the ready fix they need in the position they require in their first team. So Chelsea, for example, will stockpile these young players, but then if they suddenly find themselves with a serious injury in their first team, they need to replace a central midfielder. They'll just go out and Mm. spend 50 million quid on a central midfielder. They've all, the haves are, are not only going to be able to buy the top quality players for their first team they require, but they are going to be able to stockpile the younger the, the young players to prevent their rivals getting them. So we just do we not just need to embrace it and almost it will become like some kind of US sports style farm system, won't it? Where Chelsea will be loaning out thirty decent young players a season to clubs all over Europe. As we've seen a lot, I mean, I feel like whenever I'm commentating on a European football match, there's a player on loan from Chelsea and we should get some atmospheric classical music, the slow movement from Mahler's Fifth Symphony, perhaps, you know, the the 30 brave Chelsea souls scattered across the continent. <laughs> What's wrong with Holby, Holby City and Casualty? <laughs> I'm going for something a little bit higher brow. Oh, really? I mean, what I've seen play very recently is a good example of this. Uh, a lad called Michael Hector, who Reading... Uh, sorry, who, who Reading developed. He spent a lot of time out on loan from Reading, getting first-team experience at places in, as, as far and, and wide as Aberdeen and Barnet. And eventually he was swept up by Chelsea, mm. gathered into their system, had a spell back on loan at Reading, and has this season been playing in Germany for Eintracht Frankfurt, which actually, to me, makes much more sense than these young English players. He's London-born, but... Jamaican in terms of you know where he plays international football that seems like a better solution really that these young English players would go and play with big clubs elsewhere on the continent rather than in the championship and in league one because they will be playing a standard of football or at least in front of crowds and in an environment that will be more closely akin to to Premier League football they won't be having to deal with the attritional nature of perhaps the championship or league one where it's sort of a real dogfight isn't it for these teams to get the points they need to, to achieve their own 
And by all accounts, Michael Hector seems to be doing pretty well and gaining some really good experience this season at Frankfurt. And he's one of just a number of similar young players who are on Chelsea's books, but playing for relatively big clubs around the continent. It, it should be, presumably, about the development of the players. The club's main interest should be developing these players, whether if they play for them or eventually play somewhere else. But if the clubs are stopped buying the players for their own ends to say, well, we don't want another club to have him, so yeah. we'll sign him. That's one thing. That's maybe not really understandable. Well, you maybe understand it from the club's point of view. From the outside, you say, well, how is that player's development being helped? But if you're looking at the players and sending them out to play somewhere, whether they can cope or not, they'll soon find out. And players are adaptable. You give them a year, maybe they, they can learn to actually play at that level. And that's better for their development than being cocooned at a club for four or five years. They come out at the early 20s. They've not kicked a, a ball for a first team or anyone's first team. And that isn't, that isn't developing a player at all. Actually, you're actually setting yeah. it back four or five years. Yeah, what message are you saying to that, that player in his late teens? That, do you know what? We're signing you. We don't really feel like you're quite good enough for our first team, but we don't want to risk you proving us wrong yeah. and, and being a really good player for one of our rivals. It's a really negative message, isn't it, to send out to, to one of those players? But if you can afford to do it, that's why they're, they're yeah. saying, right, yeah. give us all these players. We can afford to do it. Agents are keen to have a, a player on the books of Chelsea rather than yeah. playing somewhere in the, in the championships. You can understand why they're being forced to go down this road. But you're absolutely right. If you can afford to do it, but it still doesn't make it right, and that's the whole thing. And that's why I was interested to say, getting all young players together that's apparently really good for their development. Okay, I was in a, a very strong youth team that played together for, for five or six years and we all knew each other very well, but it's a very, it, wasn't, it wasn't 30 of us, there was kind of 12 of us, so it's a very different story. That's why I was a bit surprised that that's maybe the thinking, the philosophy behind stockpiling all these players. Actually, is it true that they develop quicker? But we don't know yet, I suppose. I guess you can't tell. You can't tell. So I think it partly depends on what you think youth development is for. Do you think clubs should be developing players to play for them? Or should clubs be just basically be developing players? And if they don't play for them, then they get sold for three, four, five yeah. million quid. Which and is yeah. another thing yeah. that legitimizes or validates what they're doing because they say, well, it doesn't matter that they're not going to play for us. We are developing a career yeah. that yeah. is. I always think about the, the, the Chelsea players who won the FA Youth Cup whenever, whenever it was the first time when they've had, the, they've had a run, haven't they, of winning mm. load, loads of the FA Youth Cup. And you, mm. you think, well, where are they all playing? And. and they are playing for teams in League One and League Two and having a successful career at that level. So they have done their job. Yeah, Chelsea. Developing you, can't, you can't criticize Chelsea for providing players to the rest of the country. It just isn't doing it for them. And you, I suppose if you look at it as a it, in the round, you can say, well, actually, all right, Chelsea are developing players. It, it does work. It just doesn't work to the level of playing for Chelsea. But what really surprises me is if you speak to people within the clubs, they will say, oh, we've got a talented left back in the 16s, so we're not going to buy a 17-year-old left-back because it blocks his progression. Yeah. They know the players in each age group when they... they have, have, there's maybe 15, 16 in each, in each age group, 15, 16, 17, 18. They will know that in each one they've maybe got two or three who they think, mm, he could make it. He could make it for us. So that's, that is what most of them want to do. So they'll say that happily, oh, we won't buy another left-back who's 17. But as Steve says, if they've got an injured first-teamer, they will say, well, we'll, don't, we'll yeah. go and buy one. And it doesn't seem to... It, at that point... There's lots of theory, lots of philosophy, lots of kind of thinking that goes into youth development, but it all breaks down at the first team because no one's prepared to say, look, actually, we will have a bit of a, a leaner year this year because we've got four 19-year-olds playing, and, but we think we'll be lean this year 
but will be stronger in two years' time. No one, no one has the nerve to do that. So what they try and do is they try and ensure against having a lean year. If they need to bring players through, mm. they want to try and develop them to a certain degree where that it, it is less of a chance that they will have a lean year. So what do they do? They prepare for that by either sending them out on loan to English lower leagues mm-hmm. because they feel that will give them the, the kind of physical attributes that they feel they need in the Premier League, or they'll send them yeah. to a, uh, a club in Europe, which will probably give them greater exposure and also probably a better level of football. If they manage to combine the training that they've had at the academy, the loan spells at one of those two, or even better, two, both of those yeah. avenues, then they will have a more rounded player who will be able to slot into their first team a little bit better. Is that not what they're trying to do? The, the problem they often find, isn't it, at youth level in the, in the Indian under-23 league, is they're trying to get those squads... To, to mirror the way the first team play, don't they? So that in an, in an emergency, they can parachute a player out of the, the under-23s into the first team because they've been... But that, that comes back to Roy saying that is not competitive because they're not playing to win games. They're playing to, to try and emulate the style of the first team and that is more important than the actual competition itself. So it does seem to be a problem that we will lose players to the game and those are the ones you should feel sorry for by the way not those who perhaps don't break into Chelsea's first team but go on to have a decent career elsewhere in Europe or in the, or in the championship the ones I feel sorry for are the, one, are the ones and the thing where I think it's most um, it's most pernicious is is when English clubs and they're not it's not just English clubs but um, larger teams whether that's England, Germany or Spain or Italy take kids from other countries under as they can under EU law or under the exceptions to the, to the FIFA statutes which exist because of EU law, take them out of their, their homeland and develop them because they think they might make it. I think that, if I'm honest, should just be outlawed. And that's because, it's, because it's depriving an entire nation of the right to, to watch potentially it, it's t- this, this talent coming through. That if, you're a, if you're a talented 16-year-old from Slovenia, where Seferin's from, I can understand why you might think my, my personal career is best served by going to develop in Spain. But to, if we're all honest, all honest, it probably isn't. I can, there's loads and loads of kids who've gone to Barcelona from all over Europe. And it's, oh, he's going to be the next Messi. He's the Israeli Messi. He's the, the Latvian Messi. He's the this, that, and the other. Then none of them are because they, aren't, they have this same problem that they're, they're kind of trapped in these super clubs where they can't break into the first team. I would happily see the, the, the idea where Man City go and take a 16-year-old from Feyenoord, which seems to happen about once every three weeks, I'd just say it outlawed. I think the, I think the, the lead should sign up to kind of, I don't know, behavioural contracts or something saying, we will not do this. We will not recruit under the age of 18 from abroad. And, and it's led to Barcelona transfer bans. And, and Real Madrid like transfer bans and Atletico yeah. Atleti- Atleti- transfer bans because they're doing it from outside the EU. Do it with inside the EU, it's legal. How is that ever going to be enforceable, though? Well, the clubs to, are never going to agree to something that they to, know yeah. could it be... It would have to be voluntary, yeah. and it's not going to be voluntary, oh. but I just... I think that that is where this is at. It, that where, that's why Seferin thinks hoarding is dangerous. Because what you end up with is all the talented kids in Slovenia and Romania and the, the countries in Eastern Europe and Central Europe that are EU members they lose all of their talented kids to the massive teams in Spain and Germany and England. The, the one aspect, though, that in which that, that, that can work, in, and you're going to see it come, just come back to Chelsea because it is a good example, is that a majority of those players that they do loan out to bigger clubs elsewhere in Europe 
aren't English-born players. There seems to be a, a reluctance, something about the mentality of those young English players about going to go and play abroad. They would rather go and and play for Nottingham Forest in the Championship or perhaps for a League One club than to go and have a go at the Bundesliga or to play in, in Liga in France where they might get that opportunity to play in front of big crowds mm. on, on decent pitches in, in impressive stadiums. So at least these players who are coming from all over the continent to the big clubs, when they do go out on loan, they are more open-minded mm. to where they will go to get their footballing experience, whereas that doesn't seem to be the case with the, the English-born players that are being stockpiled by the big clubs I just thought again psychologically for, for players of maybe 16, 17 to be in, in the academy system having the sanitised version of football we've already been talking about and getting presumably pretty well paid for it as well I don't know what, so, yeah. so again they can get to well this is actually it's not right life there's not any pressure on me I'm developing as a player mm. but it doesn't really matter if we win or lose it is all about but then you get to early 20s and they say right we actually don't want you anymore you're going to have to go out and, and earn your living psychologically they're not necessarily built to go out and play elsewhere yes. because they've got too comfortable playing in the academies yes. at the club. So actually it can be detrimental as well. Having things too perfect. Like when I was, we were cleaning the floors, cleaning boots, we had responsibilities. None of that happens now, does it? The players, I think the young players, youth players have their own, the boots cleaned for them. Yeah. So 18, I just find that bewildering because you're not learning anything. It's symbolic to me that at least one club, I think we might have talked about this before, has introduced a street soccer scenario within their academy because I just call it street soccer. Street soccer. Street soccer. Street football. Uh, the I've done I've done all, all American. Uh, That's all right. It, it, it alliterates better. Yeah. It alliterates better. Yeah. So the I think to be fair they probably described it to me as street soccer, but because they know that kids generally don't play on streets anymore, does the world change and traffic and what have you? Um, so that, hap that that's happening much less than it did, did when any of us were growing up. But particularly for kids who are in academies, they're not allowed to play for their school team or their their neighbourhood team or you know whatever it but might that's, be. That's considered a badge of honour anyway, isn't it? Because you think, well, I'm too good. I'm too good to, to play. Yeah, exactly. I'm too good to play with you, Muppets. Yeah. But again, psychologically, that's I it's think not it's great. Yeah. Detrimental. But also the fact that they've had to introduce playing the sort of football that kids just used to play because just up against a wall because <laughs> they didn't get taken into academies at the age of six. Mm -hmm. That. That says everything about what the academies are trying to do, and you're trying to you're, you're institutionalising people. And at the other end, as Chin says, that's really hard to come out of. To say, actually, all right, sorry, Nigel, you've got to go and play for Bristol Rovers in League Two with all these 34-year-olds. How many teenagers do you know called Nigel? Really popular name, Nigel. Um, <laughs> Those millennials and then Nigel. <laughs> yeah, oh, Nigel and Jordan. They're Too all called Nigel and Jordan these days. Sorry, Jordan, you've got to go out and play for Bristol Rovers, and you don't have the 34-year-old centre half kicking you. Does he hate you? Does he think you're taking his job? and th they're not ready for it they don't want to do it there's loads of examples of, of kids getting to 18, 19 at the big clubs and not being offered the contracts that they want and then kind of struggling a bit to find a club because there's one going on at the moment with Dom Solanke who's at Chelsea and really highly rated done all the inland age groups quite hard for him to find a club not because he's not talented but because where do you where do you go when You've been on that money at Chelsea. You feel as though you're owed a certain yeah. amount more, more money. I think the figures that were reported to Solanke were wrong, but and by all accounts he's a decent kid and he's not kind of one of the, you know his ego's not gone to his head. But it's going to be tough for him to go down to, to think right. I'm going to play for Wolves. That's not where that's not what he's been told he's going to end up doing. And you are I don't know. There is it's just there's a lot of dangers on a lot of sides from taking all these players in all at once. Just the more of them there are, it strikes me the fewer of them are going to make it. To be honest, do lower league clubs rely on clubs with a lot more money and bigger academies to do their schooling for them, and they basically pick up 
those who aren't good enough? Is there a benefit to those clubs who can't afford yeah, it, a youth system that yeah, costs a lot of money? It probably is, and, I, and yeah, there probably is. And the, 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 it means that the players are being trained to a high level. So th- at some point, you you guess that the the standard in League One and League Two will become. Well, the, team, the teams are trying to play a little bit yeah, more. Exactly, it's yeah. not as kind of kick and rush as it used yeah. to be. And it was really kind of a sea change for a young player to go from a, a top Premier League academy to play in League Two. Now, I don't think... It, of course, it's a change. Yeah. But the, the, the managers are trying to play a bit more football on the floor. So you would think it, the transition should be... As long as you're mentally strong enough to... to you should be able to play at that level because the, that, the teams are trying to play the same the, way you are. If the teams change because they want to change or they change because that's the sort of player they can get. Possibly, possibly yeah. a bit of both. They build a team out of those players. Yeah, and that's, what, that's they, what you've they got. They have to play. That's yeah. what everyone looks like now. Will we ever see a situation like in the mid-90s when all those players came through at Manchester United? Mm-hmm. Was, was that such a... I mean, we talk about it now still because it was a freak occurrence, but is there any environment in which that can work now? Because you will hear... And you will always hear it in, in a you know almost a repeating cycle. There is a group at Chelsea who are brilliant, and Chelsea have won the last two FA Youth, Youth Cups, haven't yeah, they? Yeah. Manchester City have been defeated in the final of those two Youth Cups. I think they're going to be in the final again this year. Mm. Um, so you've got a group of players that are surely consistently very good. Quite a lot. That's an under-18 tournament, isn't it? Quite a lot of those players have been playing in the Youth Cup since they were 16. So this is a generational blossoming. Mm. In that in that situation, do you think that any any environment allows those players to go through together and become half of a team well, I presume for that 10 years? The the yeah. um, the Neville's and, and David Beckham and all that. The academies would be similar to how it is now, but not quite. It wouldn't be as structured maybe as it is now. But the one thing that always I always admired playing against them and playing with them was their mentality. How mentally and they played together like I played with a group of players and coming through that helps but they were all together they were incredibly strong but individually they had very strong mentalities they would do whatever is necessary to be successful was that within them or did they have within that them, given them within to? them I don't, I, well I, I don't, I'm not sure you can actually coach that I'm not sure you can actually coach it. You have to have that inner drive and desire. I think collectively you can certainly strengthen that by being around each other and, and being of the same mind. But of course you're going to have occasions where you are out on your own. And that's what I always admired about the amount of training they're willing to do, the amount of fitness work they're willing to do, pushing and pushing, driving themselves on to be as good as they could possibly be. And that never changed from when they were youngsters all the way through their careers when they'd achieved financially independence. They'd won a, a, so much stuff as well. Yet they continued to try and be the best that they could be. And that's why I think that group of players are so unusual. So I don't think it'll ever happen again. I just do not think it'll ever happen again. But to have them as mentally tough as well as physically and technically as good a players as they were is extraordinary. And of course the difference between that generation for Manchester United and the current success of Chelsea and Manchester City's youth systems is that Chelsea and City's youth teams have been accrued, those players have been accrued from across the country and from across the continent, whereas of course a majority of those, those young players with Manchester United, the Fergie fledglings, they were from similar backgrounds, weren't they? They, they were lads from the northwest with the yeah. exception of David, David Beckham, Beckham who had grown up in you know in similar environments and and that gave them that that increased enhanced bond and unity i guess mm-hmm. which perhaps the 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 the, the current class of at Chelsea and Manchester City might not might not be able to retain so the development that is missing at least more often than the technical ability is their mental aptitude their ability to make the step up mentally you, you spoke to Sheffield not on this I know Rory but mm. th- he had some ideas about how to fix it basically we mentioned luxury tax in passing yeah it's difficult to know it was a ver- they were very broad strokes weren't they I guess it's difficult to know exactly how you do it I think you could you could enforce salary limits you could enforce um Although the clubs would all have to, would all have to sign up for that, I think that's unlikely. Does um, you, you run the risk of losing players to China? Basically, um, you could do 
squad limits, but again, if you have exceptions as we do at the moment, where players under, under I think under, is it under twenty ones don't count. But with certain, in the certainly, League. certainly ones as well that you have you have schooled in your own academy. Yeah, they don't count towards your squad limits. So I think it's, it is very difficult. But you you need willingness from the clubs. And the problem is the problem is that I guess the way the big clubs look at it is that it works for them. That they get that they get all these kids in for relatively small amounts of money. Mm. They train them for a bit. One or two of them might make it some point down the line. Those that don't. They sell for substantially more money. It's part of the competition. It's one of those marginal gains that they're looking to try and get on their um, on their opponents as well, isn't it? Mm. Uh, let's finish before we go with another soccer story. And uh, Andy Hinchcliffe, you have regaled us with many tales of your playing days with, thankfully, all adult behaviour and libel-worthy details removed, mainly for legal reasons, of course, and you don't want to be hounded out of the footballing fraternity of which you are a major player um, major. at all. Is he not, is he not treasurer? He's treasurer, <laughs> yes, exactly. You're the social secretary of the footballing fraternity um, so Andy Hinchcliffe it is time for never mind Jack and Ori what a soccer story well this is a story from my international soccer days well there's so yes. many <laughs> so many such a so long many. career well it was such a shame the 98 World Cup in France we all had a bit of a get together in La Manga I don't know whether you remember this this was the Paul Gascoigne got quite upset about being left out of the squad story but this is a story Aside from that story, so I got le- amazingly, I got left out of the squad for uh, for France 1998. Along the with the history of English football, star. could be so different, couldn't it? Dion Dublin, where's he now? Uh, <laughs> Ian he just comes under the hammer. I know he does. It was inherent in the sarcasm yes, with which he posed that question. Do you not, do you not have a, are you not upset that the history has done a lot better than yours? Anyway, let's move on. Ian Walker and his beautiful hair. <laughs> yeah. Phil Neville was left out. And his beautiful hair. And his beautiful hair. Gaza was left out. There was other people as well. But me, it was a travesty. That was, that was, that was the, the main that, story. Yes, that was the one that was, was on the, the back page. Yeah. 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 So Glenn Hoddle gives you the bad news, blah de blah So you, you go out and there's... How did he do it? How did he do it? Well, he, he had a room... Which he obviously which, which, did you go in uh, after after Gaza? Or the worst Gaza? thing was he had a flip chart with all the names of, of people going to so twelve o'clock David Seaman five past twelve Nicky Butt ten past twelve. The problem is sometimes it took longer than five minutes to to get because people were unhappy, weren't they? So they wanted an explanation of maybe why they weren't going. So I remember coming out after being told I wasn't going, and there was about three players sitting out mm. in the corridor. And I think it's meant to be done so it wouldn't be embarrassing. So if you got left out, you could basically just go back to your room and then yeah. be playing later on. And you go, but you kind of and people say you're going. No, I'm going home and stuff. And it got, it was just terrible the way it was organised. <laughs> and and Gaza got very upset, but he had been drinking, I think, as well. But this is not. The, so anyway, they lay on a private jet for us to fly home. It was the least they could the do. The least they could do. Least they could do. So but we all, all the get pe- ferried. All the people who got left out, out in so one private jet. Many, but there must have been eight or ten of us, I think, left out of the final squad. Must have been. So we all get ferried to the airport. So obviously the team was staying on, the squad was staying on that we were going to go. So we arrive at the airport, private jet. Gaza had had a few to drink and probably had had a few more after being told he wasn't going. So we all get onto the plane and we're all... I was upset. I wasn't like Phil Neville and crying, but I was, I was upset. <laughs> it's a true story. True story. I was upset. Has he told you that story as well? Anyway, I'm sure I've verified it. Yes. So we, we get on the plane, the plane takes off. And we get to our cruising altitude. And the next thing I see, looking back, there's only a small plane, maybe two seats either side. So I look back and Gaza would be, had been sat at the back. For some reason, he'd taken his top off. And then there was, I think, two stewardesses who were serving all, were starting to serve all the nibbles. And Gaza said, no, 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 not having any of this. And he made the stewardesses sit down. And then he proceeded to serve the in-flight meal <laughs> with his top, with his top off. <laughs> That's what I, I found everything else perfectly acceptable. Why did the man take his top off? But he was serving all these volivants and stuff, and he made 
which was brilliant. It is quite nice, isn't it? But he, he was a little bit tipsy. So the private... I actually quite enjoyed it, in a way. Being left out of the squad was a bit disappointing. But the flight home was wonderful, wasn't it? You don't get that very often, do you? Get what, a topless jazzer serving topless your Topless serving your volivants on no. the way home. And then landed at, uh, at wherever it was, Gatwick, and whisked away, and I was home before you know it. Topless Jazz's Volivance is a great name for a racehorse. <laughs> that's, that's true. <laughs> or an autobiography. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but it was a very sad flight home. Very sad. Did, Phil, did, Phil, Phil Neville cried. He was upset. How did Dion Dublin take it? I bet Dion was all right. He was reading a book about estate agents or something. Yeah. <laughs> well, he didn't seem particularly concerned. <laughs> Not particularly concerned. I like Dion. I like Dion a lot. Yeah. I like his, his musical instrument. Sorry? He's Is that what you call it? He's invented a musical instrument. Yeah. Uh, what? The, the dube. The dube, yeah. The dube, yeah. What is it? It's a type of drum, I think. Yeah. A doobie? No. Oh, a dube. <laughs> a dube. completely different. A dube. Oh, I like the fact that, that Dion Dublin's, you know, he's retired from his... Does Adi- Dion need this de- level of publicity, by the way? Decent career. Not outstanding. You know, injury injury. How afflicted. many caps did he get, do you think, Dion? Less than seven. Yeah. Fewer than seven. Get, think he did? Do you want me to check? No. I bet no, he no, played no. more than seven times, actually. He had four England caps. Four? Yes. Ah, so he's half the man I am. Well, N- just, just over. Just yeah. over half. Yes. I, just was over so, I was so... Oh, that's another funny... I've just remembered another... I keep it. It's shockingly bad. <laughs> that's to come on another edition of Nevermind Jack and Ori. Uh, what a soccer story. Uh, thank you very much indeed to Andy for at least being able to remember a funny story at very short notice. Uh, please do subscribe, share and review on iTunes if you can. And also send us any feedback you feel like is necessary for us to hear um, at setpiecemenu at gmail.com or on Twitter as well at setpiecemenu where you can send your questions to Andy Hinchcliffe using the hashtag AskChinch we'll have some more of those in a future podcast thank you to Steve, Rory and Andy and to you all for listening we'll be back with another set piece menu for you to enjoy very very soon indeed you've got to get going haven't you you're running late I, for I have a, another, for, for another prior engagement. engagement do you? yes that's why he's, that's why he's wearing a penguin suit I'm, I'm very inappropriately dressed so for this getting, informal setting. You're getting paid to do something. <laughs> I'm getting paid, yeah. Are you a waiter? Yeah, for a change. A waiter? I would be, I would be happy to be paid for such an honourable work. Chins, did, yes. you, did, you, did you ever have like a menial job? What? Like a normal job? Yeah. What did you do? Play for Everton. Oh, no, no, no. <laughs> no, no. Oh, that's terrible. Just cut that out. Take that out. No, no. Menial no. job. He played no. football. Yes. Would be I used fine. to clean Mick McCarthy's boots. No, but before you were, before you were a footballer, did you ever have a job? Like I was a always job? a footballer. A Saturday job? Yeah. I went to grammar school, man. <laughs> well, yeah, I had a Saturday Good job. Lord. So what? you've literally only been a footballer and a media celebrity. Those are the only, posh, the only employment. Um, would you, yeah, it's ah, the only employment you've ever my had. My mate was a tree surgeon. Oh, yes. Yeah, since I since you retired, yeah. you have done a lot of it. You've done decking. You've done tree I felling. I can do decking. Tree, yeah, I, I worked with a tree surgeon. I wouldn't say I was a tree surgeon. These sound a lot no. more like hobbies than in, in employment, though. When you want a tree taken down, then we'll see whether you it's would, a hobby you or would not. Often, you what? would often do it for free, wouldn't you? I did do it for free. Often. Never got paid. At all. You, you would laugh at the amount of money that you we were being offered. So you said, I used to love to use the chipper. Have you ever used a chipper? I've never used a chipper. Oh.